According to AdoptionNetwork.com, there are 428,000 children in foster care in the United States. More than 60% of children in foster care spend two to five years there before being adopted. 135,000 children are adopted in the United States every year, and of course, many children are never, never are adopted. My guest today, author Rachel Howard's new book, The Risk of Us, tells the gripping, moving story of one couple's journey as they undertake the process of potentially adopting a foster child. I'm going to talk with Rachel about foster care, adoption, and how the couple in her book navigates it all in The Risk of Us. So don't go anywhere. Matthew Felix on Air starts now. Welcome to Matthew Felix On Air, people who create, people who make a difference, coming to you from Wordspace Studios in San Francisco, California. Happy Father's Day. I hope all the dads out there are having a good one. A busy couple of weeks. Uh, this weekend, I released a few new episodes of my Travelers on Travel podcast and Words and Images podcast as well. Those podcasts are both collections from uh, before, this, uh, before my show moved from the internet radio station uh, to the studio where I do it currently. The Travelers on Travel episodes that I released, there are three of them. The first one is uh, episode 10, which is Bucket List on a Budget. And that was a fun, interesting, inspiring conversation I had with Ryan Waters. And he is the Before You Die guy. And he talks about uh, how travel changed him, how to do uh, bucket list travel on a budget, and some of the destinations where he's been. Snow monkeys in Japan, uh, whale sharks in Mexico, lots of other different destinations. So that was a fun episode. Second episode, episode 11 that I just re-released, is a refugee camp in Greece. So Northern California journalist Kathy Miller went to a Greek island and spent a few weeks volunteering at a refugee camp. And so I talked to her about her experience there, about life in the camp, um, about the refugee crisis, and, and lots more. So that was a, an important episode that's just as, just as relevant now, of course, as it was back then. And the third episode that I released of the Travels, uh, Travelers on Travel series is one that is also in my Words and Images series, but it's sort of half about writing, half about travel, so I decided to, uh, to include it here. And this is Erin Byrne, writer Erin Byrne, who most of you who listen and watch this show are already well familiar with because she's been on a few times. Uh, but she talks about seeing Duende, or seeking Duende, rather, in Spain, finding inspiration in France, and how culture clash leads to personal growth. So that was another, another great episode. The last episode that I'll mention is from my uh, Words and Images podcast, and that's where I talk. Those, those talks are basically focused on writers, photographers, and filmmakers. And this particular episode is on writing workshops. And so I talked with Traveler's Tales publisher and travel writer Larry Habiger about a workshop that he was getting ready to lead in Morocco. So we talked a little bit about Morocco as well, but also just writing workshops in general. Um, you know, the different approaches to, to workshops, what people get out of them, uh, that sort of thing. So especially if you're a writer interested or thinking about, haven't workshopped before, thinking about doing it, uh, a good conversation uh, for, for along those lines. Okay, next week, actually no show next week, but the following week, June 30th, uh, my guest will be Guide Dogs for the Blind CEO and President Christine Benninger. I have been interested in that organization for a long time. As I've mentioned in the past, I regularly pet sit for a, a uh, career change. Uh, a pooch who was almost a guide dog ended up 
uh, having having a career change. Uh, I see them training a lot when I'm in San Rafael, and so I've just I've wanted to have them on the show for a long time. So I'm excited that uh, Chris is going to be here, and we're going to talk all about that organization and the amazing work that they do. And then I'll go on hiatus for a little while, but I'll talk about that uh, for the summer, basically. So I'll talk about that uh, June 30th. All right. No doubt much more to be said, but it's time to get to our show. So after this quick message from my host and sponsor, Wordspace Studios, I will be back with author Rachel Howard. A quick thanks to Wordspace Studios in San Francisco for sponsoring Matthew Felix on Air. Wordspace's mission is to bring together writers and thinkers of all ages and experiences. Wordspace will soon be offering creative writing workshops, a literary book club, and guided writing groups. And Wordspace is already offering writing residencies. They are submission-based, and they provide writers with room and board for up to one month. To find out more, you can email info at wordspacestudios.com. Rachel Howard is a graduate of the MFA program for writers at Warren Wilson College and fellow of the McDowell Colony. Her fiction and nonfiction has appeared in Ziziva, O Magazine, The New York Times Magazine, The Los Angeles Review of Books, and lots and lots of other prestigious publications. Rachel's first book was a memoir, The Lost Night, about which she was interviewed by Ira Glass on NPR's This American Life. Rachel lives in Nevada City, California, where she founded Yuba Writers Workshops, and a reading series, Yuba Lit, which is now fiscally sponsored by the Nevada County Arts Council. Rachel teaches through uh, Stanford Continuing Studies, where she created a writing about spirituality course with readings about a multiplicity of faith traditions. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for making the drive down. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, so let's just jump right into it. Uh, how and why did you get started writing? Oh, all the way back to starting. We're going to go writing. back really far. That's great. Yeah, let's let's. <laughs> this is going to be a comprehensive interview. Wow. I hope you don't have anywhere to be. Yeah. No, I um, I I started really when I was about ten. Oh wow, we are um, going far back. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> do you remember I, your first your first work? I do. I mean, I wrote. Uh, I remember that I wrote a short story for my fourth grade class after we had gone to the Monterey Bay Aquarium. Oh, nice. And it was about a whale. And it, it needed a home and it, the aquarium <laughs> had to be so big that all the countries had to come together to build the aquarium on top of multiple countries. And wow. And uh, I remember just really enjoying that story and having an idea at 10 years old. That what if I could be a writer? And at the same time, I, I, I really loved solitude. And um, luckily, my my home at that time with my mom and my stepdad the bedroom had come with a desk that was too large to be moved. It was a huge uh -huh. L-shaped desk, and it just felt like I'm meant to be a person who spends a lot of time in this her room at her desk. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> so it was preordained from yeah. very early on. I started journaling, I remember, in, I think, fourth grade. Mm. So I don't know how old you are then. But yeah, yeah, way back. Yeah. Oh, so it's the same time. Mm -hmm. I didn't have a big desk, but that's, I love that it, the house just came with that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I started journaling at that time too. Yeah. I would put things down on slips of paper and then hide them in boxes and hide them in my room. And then I had some lapses in journaling, but I started again when I was 17 uh -huh. and that journal I have written in every two to three days, usually not more than four days passes between entries continuously since I was 17 to this day. Yeah. So where do you shell, where do you store them all? I actually, um, because in Nevada County, we're really worried about fire now with uh -huh. everything that's going on. I just bought three big um, <laughs> fireproof safes and put all my journals in them. <laughs> I love that. Just I today. love that. That just today. Yeah. Wow. How timely. Yeah. How timely. Wow. Three fireproof safes. Yeah. That's, that's, I have one, um, 
what's it called? A uh, trunk. <laughs> but it's not fireproof, but I live in the city. It's earthquake proof. Um, but wow, that's, yeah, that's impressive. Yeah, I, I feel, um, I don't know if I should feel bad about it. Like, it seems kind of selfish. Like, the thing that I care about the most that I'm going to put in the safe is all my journals. But at the same time, I just, I know I'm devastated if I lost them all. But the other thing is, um, and we weren't going to talk about this at all, so we're already completely off our, mm -hmm. our schedule. So people watching, listening, hopefully you'll find this interesting. But um, but it could you could say, yeah, it's narcissistic because, oh my God, I'm preserving. And yet we're writers. That's the problem. And so you, we are, <laughs> I do go back to those journals and there is information there and there is inspiration there. There's insight there. So I don't know that it's really... You know, it would be, I don't know. It seems like given our, given our profession, our vocation, we at least are, maybe that's just self-serving, a self-serving way of seeing it. But I mean, you might actually use these, right? No, I, and I do. Use yeah. Them. And you do I use actually, them. Yeah. I was, I'm, I'm working on another memoir now. So even more so than the couple of years that I was working on this. I think you're fine it. having just invested <laughs> <laughs> because imagine you're, you're working your book. I mean, I don't even want to say this about the fires. You know what? I just got in the mail yesterday. Speaking of fires, again, we're just we're going on, on a, already on a third major tangent. I got a, a mask, oh, one of yeah. those high end masks, because last year and the year before I didn't have the masks. They sold out right away. And so I was just using the scarf. Yeah. And yeah, so it no, matters. No, so point being, you need to protect those things because it's a real there's a real danger, yeah, especially where you live. Even Yeah, more. I was trying to be realistic. And I was kind of haunted by uh, Maxine Hung Kingston was a a guest reader at St. Mary's College a couple of years ago when I was guest teaching at their MFA program and she talked about losing her novel in the Oakland Hills fire. Oh God, her whole novel? Her whole novel, <gasps> which she rewrote. Because she all only did it by hand or typewriter or something? She uh, didn't have electronic... I think it was just her computer burned up too. Everything oh, the actual burned computer. Up. Oh yeah, and she didn't <laughs> save to the cloud or... Oh God. Right, well it was before... Before that, before, before we even think that. And yeah. so, yeah, Maxine Hong Kingston lost a whole book and rewrote it and I so that made that it real to me. Hurts. That makes it very real. <laughs> yeah. Very real. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Wow. I'm I'm glad she was able to kind of redo it though and didn't just throw in the towel and say I can't. Because well, that would be I would have that question, right? I'd be like, I just spent all the time can I even try to recreate that and do I even I don't know. I guess it, if the story is so compelling and you, you still feel that need to tell that story, I guess. Uh, well, the despair would be a high challenge for me. I don't know that I would do it, but yeah. Maxine Kong, Hong Kingston being who she was, she completely reinvented the book, basically. Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let's get back on track here. The, the, all that was really interesting. Okay. At least for me here. So we're still going to talk about your background a little bit before we get into the book, um, because you said something really interesting. Speaking of education and, uh, and becoming a writer... And you said something interesting specifically in the acknowledgments um, to the risk of us. I'm going to quote you twice here already. Uh, quote, I owe so much of the program for writers at Warren Wilson College for converting me to writing as a life of suitable silence before mystery and faith in particulars. So I want to read that one more time for the audience because I just thought that was beautiful and I just that just really stood out for me. So for converting me to writing as a life of suitable silence before mystery and faith in particulars. Can you kind of just briefly uh, touch on, on what, what you were thinking or what, what you were saying with that? Yeah, I mean, Warren Wilson was, um, I sound like a total cult member every time <laughs> I talk about it. Yeah. It was a conversion experience for uh -huh. me, and I didn't expect that going in. Yeah. I had already published a memoir, my memoir about my father's unsolved murder, um, which I wrote just by reading. The Lost Year? The Lost Night. Lost yeah. Night, yeah. Yeah. 
I and I I wrote that just by reading as much as I could and being in a a writing group, um, which had some excellently <laughs> insightful members who helped me along with that book. So yeah. I already had a book in the world, and I had worked as a journalist and. I was wanting though to, I knew I needed more help um, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. deeper apprenticeship for what I wanted to do with fiction. So that's why I went to Warren Wilson and um, it was humbling. I, they, I mean, my first advisor there told me I'm gonna break you down and put you back together. And I thought, <laughs> but, uh, oh wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, well, maybe she doesn't know how advanced I am and that I don't need that. And it was utterly what I needed. Um, and I ended up learning the most there from the poets mm -hmm, uh, because mm -hmm. in that low residency format, you go for a 10 day stint, which I kind of thought at the time was like, oh, you hang out with other writers and you drink wine and you watch the sunset. Uh -huh. But it was like this grueling nine o'clock in the morning till uh, three in the afternoon workshops and classes and lectures and then meeting with your supervisor and then readings and then it was it was really they push you hard and you know you're a writer when nine o'clock is grueling yeah <laughs> because yeah. I feel the exact same way I feel the exact same way but that's there's a sign we know she's legit not that yeah. we doubted but she's like you're not gonna believe this at 9 a.m. they made us start working at 9 a.m. so I'm sorry continue no no yeah. well, but so the all the fiction writers go to the poet lectures and the poets go to the fiction writers mm, lectures mm -hmm. and vice versa mm -hmm. and I just found that I was learning so much more from the poetry lectures because of that emphasis on the particular and um, not about explaining things not about structuring information not about telling people what you think you already know but creating a container a shape a form to just hold something that is more than we can explain or understand mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. brought that into fiction. Yeah. Yeah. I tried to write some poetry a while back that will never see the light of day and I should probably oh, put too. in one of your safes <laughs> um, just to make sure that it never does. But, but yeah, but just that experience of trying to use language, see language, see things, reality, life from that different and express it so much differently just helped inform kind of my own relationship with language and expression and like I said, even though the poetry will not be read, um, <laughs> it was a really good exercise and very helpful in, so, in that sense. Yeah. Uh, I also, I am not a poet. I uh -huh. wrote one poem in my life and uh -huh. I sent it to some poet friends to help me with it. And I realized I was not going to write more, but I, I venerate them. our strengths. I venerate them for that reason. But, but yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And um, I mean, I think also like I had like Stuart Dybeck, I had a way of describing, you know, with his short stories. Um, and I'm not sure who he said this to, but he said it's a difference between wanting to express something and wanting to make something. Mm -hmm. um, and so like a, mm -hmm. even a short story is not about expressing something. Mm -hmm. It's about making something that has a shape yes. and that contains something that's irreducible. Hmm. I love yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. Let's talk about one other thing sort of in your education leading up to um leading up to the conversation we're going to have about the book that again is um, uh, not something that people would necessarily off the, t you know, on the surface think is going to inform your writing, but it really did. And this is your art modeling. Yeah. And um, I just found this fascinating when I was reading about this. And so this is something that you, you did when you were um, to help support yourself when you were getting, getting started out as we all do take all these different odd jobs and things like that. And so you became an art model and, um, 
in a 2013 New York Times article, you kind of you introduce or you just you touch on that experience. And I'm just going to kind of fast forward and read through a part of that to give um, people a sense. So uh, five years ago, I walked into a third floor art studio on the campus of UC Berkeley. I'm going to paraphrase a little bit here, too, in the interest of time. Climbed atop a wooden stair, uh, wooden stage and dropped my yellow bathrobe. Panelist strangers asked me to pose and then to freeze. I had never modeled for artists and had no idea how I would feel standing naked as people I had just met. Uh, stared at me. The idea had some bohemian appeal, but I needed to supplement my income. Fast forward, she becomes a model, and then I soon grew to love the freedom and strange relinquishment of status that comes from offering your nude presence to artists. What inspired me the most, though, was how profoundly it changed my writing life. So that, again, was just a really long way of me rephrasing that question, which, so how did it inform your writing life? Oh boy. <laughs> and again, that's probably yeah. a whole other episode. No, 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 so, no, but at no. a high I level, mean, yeah. Art modeling was the best thing I ever did for my writing and yeah. for my life. And I, I wish that I still did it. I mm -hmm. can't just because I live in a small town now. Yeah. When you're here yeah. and you're in a big town, you can kind of float around for different right. groups and it's vanish have, afterwards. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Have this certain intimacy that's in a constructed space and then go live your other life. Right. And you can't right. do that where you see everybody at the same grocery store every right. day. Right. Um, but, um, yeah, how did it change my writing life? Um, just the analogies to painting, mm -hmm. um, to seeing the whole, uh, rather than thinking of just information being restructured to create some kind of linear argument or, um, delivery of information, which is what I was used to from journalism, mm -hmm. which is all about efficiency of handing something off that's well organized mm -hmm. versus like I was talking about with Stuart Dybeck creating a thing so that, um, you know, even though writing unfolds page after page rather than taking it all in on a canvas at once, it has a composition. It has a wholeness to the story that you see and you, you try to grasp that wholeness in your imagination and, get that wholeness down as fast as you can so that mm -hmm. things organically connect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so even, I mean, I just started thinking more in painting analogies, which um, yeah. just with this, with this uh, particular book was uh -huh. actually really helpful because with the risk of us, um, part of what I wanted to do was this experience of uh, adopting a foster child trying to uh, gain the trust of a child who has no good reason to trust you mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, was really beautiful one moment and really painful and scary in the next. Right. And those, talk about that. yeah. And those just stand next to each other. Yeah. And so coming back to my, my art modeling experience and just being around artists, I started to think of that as a pontalist technique, like a Surat painting, mm that um, you could have the different colors mm -hmm. and the dots stand next to each other. You yeah. don't have to bleed the colors together. You don't have to bleed the, the beautiful and the scary together. They're just existing side by side. Mm. But then when you step back, you see the bigger picture. Which gets me to, I'm not going to ask this yet, but I can, now that you say that, I see that in how you structured The Risk of Us with these these moments and like i said we'll, we'll get to that uh but that's interesting that's really interesting the one thing i want to add about the um again quoting you about uh, your time as an art model this is from a 2013 essay that called losing things that you published in uh, berfois and you're talking about your husband did a, a drawing a, a nude portrait of you and you hung this up on a billboard 
or not a billboard. Oh heavens! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she got really comfortable with her. Yeah. No, no, on on your bulletin board. That was a very effective <laughs> ad for my book. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> through the roof. Sales uh. went through the roof. That's funny. This is why we like doing this live. Um, <laughs> no, on your bulletin board, and then the the quote that I really liked about that is you said, "quote in this essay, losing things." Quote, I pinned that draw and you're asking yourself, why did I why did I pin that in the middle of my bulletin board? And your response to yourself was, I quote, I pinned that drawing there to remind myself always to be naked, mm-hmm. which I loved. Um, and just that idea of what you had learned from being vulnerable and just having that that constant reminder. Mm-hmm. Is it a gross overstatement to say that there's a parallel um or a gross overstatement of the obvious to say that there's a parallel between exposing yourself in the flesh and, and exposing yourself on the page that there's. Yeah. Not for me. I mean, that yeah, is, that is like, that's, that's the heart of my process. Right, that's right. like who I decided to be as a writer. Yeah. And I, and I really like made a conscious choice about that and like pinned up on my bulletin board cause I lost my way in my writing for a while and mm-hmm. I kind of lost sense of what were my real qualities that I had to offer and Interesting. what was my temperament and my sensibility. And, and so I, I had a moment where I regrouped and tried to write down what are my, what do I feel are my essential qualities mm-hmm. that I can bring and, mm-hmm. and, and nakedness and vulnerability were up there. And I wrote down a list and I pinned it to my bulletin board. Actually, the, the, the portrait is no longer on the bulletin board, but okay. now the list is. Okay. Mm-hmm. That works. That works <laughs> instead. All right. One more question. Um, I don't know. I say one more. Maybe I have a couple more. Let me thought. No. One more question before we get to the risk of us. And this is actually a nice segue into that. Um, the line between nonfiction and fiction. So I'm not going to ask you about, okay, what's fiction, what's nonfiction in, in the risk of us, right? But it's obvious there are many, many glaring similarities between yourself and your real life and the protagonist and the life that she has in the novel. So like I said, I'm not, I'm not interested in, in picking apart what's, what's true, what's not, obviously. But what I am interested in is, as a writer, navigating that line between, you know, you could have chosen, for example, to have the protagonist be much different than you. Um, so can you just kind of talk about, and I'm sure you must have gotten this question before because the similarities are so, so obvious. So can you talk a little bit about any sort of angle on that, whether it's kind of why you chose to, to make them so similar or, or how you navigate that line and, and don't necessarily, cause I can see a lot of people might just try to assume that this, because it's so similar that it, this is not fiction. So how do you navigate all that? I'm just curious yeah. about that whole I'm constantly thinking about all of these things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's your latest thinking? Yeah. Well, um, to me, they are different modes of consciousness mm, almost mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. a different relationship to the reader that I bring to the page. So I'm back writing memoir now. Yep. And I had to be very aware of the relationship with the reader in that. But um, it's, it's, a, it's different than fiction. Uh, which has to have its own internal coherence. Nothing outside of the world that's in the pages can matter. So any correspondence to what you've lived has to be absolutely coincidental, Mm -hmm. even in your imagination. Mm -hmm. Um, So I do actually sometimes now think that I have, because I did mix some things that I have lived and things that I have not lived and, with all the characters in the book, there's things that are true to real life people and not. Mm-hmm. I sometimes think that I've lived experience I haven't because <laughs> I invented it for the book. Right, and right. when I'm in that space, 
I don't, I also don't keep track, yep. which is very different with memoir. I definitely keep track. I'm not one of those memoirists who is okay with intentional invention. I'm mm-hmm. um, my own ethic creative, about that. Yeah. Creative yeah. nonfiction, taking a little more liberty. Yeah. yeah. I, my own ethic with that is that I don't take liberty. I, I really try to be uh, true to what I can reconstruct and uh, I, I don't d- deliberately invent things. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I think uh, with this book, uh, part of the process was I really stopped and thought about who are my influences? What am I really drawn to? What really lights up my imagination, the writers that matter the most to me? And a lot of them were working in this way where you felt this ambiguity of was this their life or wasn't it mm. in their fiction? Mm-hmm. Um, so in that sense, it was sort of deliberate. It was deliberate. You liked that sort of ambiguity. Yeah. That, uh-huh, uh-huh. I decided like, you know, Marguerite Dura and the lover, I'm drawn back to that in part because it has this intentional ambiguity of how much did she live? Even though when I'm in the book, it feels internally consistent and it, you know, succeeds in that way. It still has that charge. Mm-hmm. Um, Jean Reese, um, really influenced by her novels and, and, and her as well. Sheila Hetty, you know, using her own, her own name and her friend's own names. But then if you read all interviews about her process, she would write scenes and then, um, put the, uh, the contents of the scenes in a description on an index card, reshuffle them and combine scenes and then rewrite new scenes out of that. So uh-huh. you could no longer say what she had lived or what she hadn't, even though she's still using her own name. And her friends' names. And her friends' names. Um, and then there's some other writers who um, aren't quite pushing it that overtly, but um, you know, Peter Orner, recently I read um, his new story in the Paris Review, which is lovely, called Ineffectual Tribute to Lynn. Just came out in the last Paris Review issue. Uh-huh. Um, it's in there as fiction. The character seems to have the last name Orner, though, and he's a writer <laughs> who's supposed to have produce another novel for Little Brown. And sounds very so familiar. Yeah. So yeah. you know. So uh-huh. where is the line in there? Um, so it was definitely a deliberate decision. Interesting. Well, and I, I'll say what I deliberately did before this interview is, you know, certain questions that I had, wondering, well, did, is that really, you know, is that really her? Does she really have a daughter? Did she really adopt a daughter? Did she really? Lots, you know, different things in the, did that really happen? And I deliberately didn't try to find out because for this interview, and then I have a lot of questions off camera afterwards, <laughs> but for this interview, I wanted just to be, okay, this is the book. This yeah. is, and I didn't want to be informed by anything that I might, may or may not have known. Uh, but that's, that's interesting that you sort of, um, yeah, deliberately liked that ambiguity and went for that ambiguity. Interesting. <laughs> okay. It was more deliberate than I realized. Yeah. I mean, I knew you were aware that you were doing it, but that's that idea of, of really sort of relishing that, like you said, like Marguerite Dura or, okay. Which brings us to the book. You thought we were never going to get there, <laughs> but now we're here. Can you give us, uh, listeners and viewers and myself, an overview, just an introduction to, to what the book's about? We've kind of danced around it a little bit, but can you tell us kind of the, the, uh, the elevator summary yeah. or whatever yeah <laughs> i'm so bad at elevator pitches too. okay don't don't mess it up don't mess it hey this uh, isn't the first time you've done this, this actually, i expect this to be polished no pressure <laughs> i mean i will say though that this book is much easier for me to quote unquote elevator pitch because yeah. um it just came to me with a clear 
container. Uh-huh. This is where it will start. This is where it will end. This is what it's essentially about. This That's is what nice. the driving question is about. And I can walk that line. Yeah. And um, so my novel that I worked on for seven years that was never published before this, I could never give an elevator pitch to because uh-huh. it didn't <laughs> it didn't have yeah. all of that clarity of elements. Interesting. When it, yeah, yeah. When yeah. I started work on it. Um, Which is maybe a sign, right? If we can't, maybe if we can't succinctly kind of get that down to those essential elements maybe maybe that's because we haven't figured it out yet yeah and and that's i think mm, i mean you don't want to take that to heart so seriously that a pro uh, you know a possibly promising project like material that you're really drawn to right that you kill it before you you know you, you want to give it a chance you, got, you, gotta, yeah, 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 you have to yeah. let it be that messy I couldn't for a come while up with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 no it's got to be messy at it, first. It, i mean because yeah. it is going to be rare that it just comes to you with the elements like so did. so clear which yeah. just was a freak occurrence in this case yeah but i do think yeah when it's not working my main breakthrough over the last seven years was to say i had to define for myself what is the essential driving human dilemma level question mm-hmm. and if the one that i thought i was working with isn't pulling this together as a form then I need to rethink what that question could be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But um, <laughs> anyway, about this book, it was yeah. really clear. Um, so it's about a couple in their 40s. Um, actually, the husband's in his 50s, in my imagination, in the book. Uh-huh. I don't think you know that on the page. I don't think we know that. Um, but yeah. uh, they um, it's the second marriage for each of them. Yep. And they uh, both want to adopt a child out of foster care and... Um, they, they move um, from San Francisco to the foothills to do that. And um, they meet seven-year-old Marisa, who has already been in four or five homes. Um, and they're promising that they're going to be the, the quote-unquote forever home for her. Um, and it Although the, you say they're promising, but they don't, they're not sure in the beginning, though. They're, they're, I mean, that's part of their... Because they don't, do they tell her that in the beginning? Because that's a lot of their struggle is, and a lot of what we don't know as readers is whether or not that's ultimately going to happen. You're telling that, they're saying that to themselves. They're They're hoping that that's what will happen. Yeah, yeah, no, they're saying it to themselves. That's their intention. And it's, it's, um, so a lot of the system itself is, I just felt like it's in, it's just ripe for fiction. So we're going to talk about the system. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Because what you, yeah, a lot of how you feature the system. It's fascinating and it's heartbreaking and it's, but yeah, like I said, we'll get to that. So I'm sorry, oh, I interrupted okay. you. So, so couple foothills, they're hoping that this adoption will work out. She's already been through some other stuff. Yeah. And so it starts when she moves in Yeah, and then I knew that it's going to go to, they're either going to be able to take this from foster care to finalizing adoption or it's not going to happen. And probably for this family, it's going to happen within a year to two years. Mm-hmm. So that was a really a nice clear container for the story. Yep. Uh, these characters have a life beyond that. I don't have to worry about that life <laughs> before or beyond that for the story because what matters for the plot here is it's going to peak. They're either going to be able to go down to the courthouse and make this official or she's going to move on to a new placement as unimaginable as that seems. Right. And that's going to be the turning point. So why foster care and adoption as the main focus? Yeah, well, so we were just beginning to get into the system. So yeah. um, I did adopt a child out of foster okay. care and knew nothing about the system before I before I started wanting to do that. And um, just the t- 
tensions inherent to an inherently difficult situation. Mm -hmm. And that is just prime material for <laughs> fiction to investigate. Like in real life, we don't right. want to be in these um, terribly tense situations where it feels like there's no good resolution and we don't know which way it's going to go. We run from those as fast as we can. And that's why we put them into fiction where we can vicariously experience them, hopefully right. learn something from them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that is, so that's, that's the, the sort of the surface level set up for the story. But when I heard you read, so I heard you read twice, um, which is lucky for me because that's how I got to invite you here today because I heard you read twice. But um, when you read I th the first time or maybe even both times, but I remember the first time specifically, you said, you know, the book is, it's about adoption. It's about um, this couple that tries to bring this foster child into their home to see if they can make this work. But you said it's also really about something else. Yeah, so part of what I know? knew from the beginning yeah. was uh, I knew this will probably work as a story as if I put everything into this because it's about what is unconditional love. That's what I was looking for. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that, and that's what they're promising her. And then it comes up very quickly in the novel. Um, she she goes out with a friend and she's describing what they're going to try to do to make to have this little girl become part of their family. And he's saying, well, what if it doesn't work out? And she said, well, we're supposed to be offering unconditional love. Right. That's already on like page three. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is um, a beautiful thing to want to offer. Um, actually, quite difficult to set yourself up to deliver on that. And we're going to talk a lot more about that. Because I love that that's the underlying the underlying theme, and you actually addressed that theme in in a few different ways. So that's going to come back up in our conversation. But um, for now, in the spirit of just staying somewhat surface level, can you give just quick introductions to the three character the three main characters in the book? Oh, okay. So um, there's the woman who is trying to adopt. What's her name and, again? And she doesn't have a name. <laughs> <laughs> I was preparing last night, and I thought. Oh shit! Did I miss? Did I miss her name? And I started yeah. to flip through the book, and I thought, I'm pretty sure it's not there. And if it is, I'll just ask before the interview. But sometimes, because I'm so visual, sometimes the name will be mentioned, and I'm I'm just seeing the person, and I don't attach to that. And I flip through some pages, and I thought, no, I'm pretty sure it's not in there. No, so it's, I'm glad to know. Okay, yeah, so can I ask why? Um, so that just happened organically. Okay. Uh -huh. um, part of what made the book come fast is that this voice of the woman speaking. Uh, to first trying to speak to her husband and then trying to speak to Marisa, the little girl, and then trying to speak to both of them. And mm -hmm. that uh, when that voice came to me and I started walking that line, I got a certain point in and I was like, I haven't used her name and I haven't needed to. And then I thought, you know what? I actually really like that because I, I this book is about the mother trying to do the adopting, which I actually feel... It, the person who matters the most is the child. Mm -hmm. So it, mm -hmm. it's, it's not when she, I was uneasy with the fact that it's her speaking it mm, um, mm -hmm. and that it's her angle on the story because I feel like uh, the adoptees and the foster children's experience matters more. Mm -hmm. They are the most vulnerable people in this situation. And there was a kind of way in which I wanted to, to honor that um, they also the, the little girl Marisa is holding the most pain and as I got into the book and I started re-entering the book every day uh, I almost wanted to make it a space like 
a cathedral or a church where you can walk in and things that are painful are are held as uh, sacrosanct. As they are, in fact, in one point in the book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, then the cathedral ended up coming into the book in yeah. that way. So I was uneasy given that that was the pain that and the person who mattered the most, that it's the mother speaking it. And so I felt like the only way I earn this for myself is if it's the mother speaking it, but it's in an almost paradoxical way, not really about her. Mm-hmm. It's got to be about something bigger than her, right. even though she's the it's angle on it that's triangulating it. Yeah. Yeah. And yep. so then I thought, I really like that her name doesn't show up because it sort of reinforces that notion that it's yeah. not actually about her. Well, I didn't miss the name. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like I said, it was only when I started to prepare for day to today that I realized, oh, wait, you know. Did I miss something here? And I would say just to the point you made a second ago, um, it would be fascinating if you could have told this story from Marisa's perspective, mm-hmm. but maybe that would be book. a whole, yeah, part two. Uh, but that would also, I think, be quite the undertaking. I mean, particularly given that she's seven years old. Um, right. Yeah. She's not at an age to, to really understand it in the way that right, the exactly. adults in this book right. are. Yeah. Right. Okay, so just quickly then, uh, Sebastian and Marisa, just to give people a quick idea. Oh, so um, Sebastian, the husband, um, he's an artist, um, art teacher. Um, he has a kind of gloomy side, <laughs> as a pessimistic <laughs> As artists view of life. often do, yeah. Yeah, sure. he's an adjunct, so he's, uh, he's barely supporting himself. Uh-huh. Um, and and the, the narrator is a, um, a writer and a writing teacher, and she's not making bank either, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, as is often the case. Y- yeah, yep. and they're both trying to hang on also to that um, creative aspect of themselves as they're entering parenting, which is also not easy and a challenge for each of them. Yeah. Yeah. He's a um, big fan of, of Samuel Beckett. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And he, he has his also, um, they have their difficulties in the marriage. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. think it's a, I think it's a good marriage and they're both happy they're with each other. And yet, Every marriage except has for when some, she's doing the dishes. Except when she's doing the dishes. Now you know I really read the book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Except, <laughs> yeah. And I'd be annoyed too. Actually, well, I can't say anything. Yeah, I'm familiar with that dynamic. Let's just say <laughs> that. Okay. Um, Marissa has gone through a lot of trauma, so it would be one thing, you know, to write this book. It's already challenging enough just bringing a foster child into your home and then trying to undertake the 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 adoption process and seeing do the personalities mesh. There are a whole bunch of variables at play there, right? But uh, as you talk about in the book, you know, there a lot of these foster kids, a big percentage, have lots of different kinds of trauma. And so trauma is very present throughout this book. And can you tell me just a little bit about how Marisa's trauma plays out in this dynamic with this family that's, you know, this couple that's trying to bring her in? Yeah, well, this is another thing inherent to foster care that I just thought, oh, man, this is territory for fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, because they actually don't, they can't... In the foster care situation, you can't necessarily know mm-hmm. where the trauma is coming from. Mm-hmm. This person is coming to you with a history. You know things that were bad enough to have them removed from their parent. Hopefully, they were rightfully removed from their parent. Because a whole other issue, a right? A whole other yeah. issue, yeah. but um, that's what we hope is that if you're doing the adopting, it's because it had it, this person actually really does need to be adopted. Yeah. Um, but, you, you know, you d- you're not necessarily going to know exactly what happened. And so then there's a lot of guesswork 
when the panic attacks and the trauma starts getting acted on mm-hmm. of where is it coming from? Right. How do I actually help with it? Well, and in, 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 in this case, the trauma in question that permeates the story isn't even just with Marissa. Marissa, also um, the woman has undergone, the, the protagonist, the narrator, has undergone her own trauma. Mm-hmm. So now we've got this cocktail of intense. So how does bringing this traumatized child into her home how does that interact with the trauma that she had before? Cause it, mm-hmm. there are lots of different answers to that question. It that's, I'll just let you answer that rather oh, than I well, start to, I yeah. was going to elaborate on that. And I was like, wait, I'm, I'm going to start answering her <laughs> question. Go ahead. Yeah. So, cause there's a lot going on there. Oh, I would love to hear your, your <sighs> the reflections on it, but you I will, go first. I would yeah. just say quickly that I, I knew that I had a novel when that element came in. So actually the first pages that I wrote in my notebook about this novel were about the narrator's relationship to her ex-husband, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> which you also learn about quickly in the novel because yeah, yeah she, the narrator, um, this is something I drew on from my own life. Mm-hmm. Um, her father was murdered when she was a little girl. Yep. I didn't shy from using that, even though it corresponds to my own life. And she went through a period later of um, panic attacks, anxiety, uh, a lot of acting out against romantic partners and not trusting that they were going to be there for her and that unconditional love was going to come to her from them. She tested her ex-husband to the utmost and he, poor guy, (laughs) (laughs) decided to withstand it (laughs) Uh and married her. And she realized after she married him that she had done it for the safety and the security, but that she wouldn't, she shouldn't really be married to him. And so the, the guilt of that is haunting her. And then it creates this really interesting hall of mirrors with, well, okay, if adoption is also like a marriage in a way, this little girl, Marisa, I, I want to finalize. I don't want her to, in a sense, marry me for the wrong reasons. Mm-hmm. What if she doesn't actually love me, but she's doing it because she has to, and then she has to just convince herself, pretend to herself that she loves me. I wouldn't want that for her for the rest of her life. Right, right. There are so many interesting parallels that you make there, and I'm just going to let the readers read it. But at, throughout the story, I mean, there are different parallels that come out related to their respective traumas. Do we have a gunfire going on outside what oh, is that I see it. um it's fireworks, oh, fireworks? okay <laughs> i don't know if the viewers can see it but all right there's sparkles over there okay as long as as long as we're safe here i could it just sounded weird through my headset so <laughs> yeah. i wanted to make sure there's nothing all right it's reassuring that i just saw that you can fireworks. see it okay good and i wonder what they're celebrating anyone who <laughs> is watching and hearing the sound we are safe here yeah. in wordspace studios there's no need to panic uh, but it just kept going on. So I just wanted to check in on that. Okay. Speaking of trauma. Um, but then, because there are other angles here, which again, in the interest of time, I won't go into too, too deeply. But then there's questions about, well, if she, if the mother has gone through this trauma of her own, then the, the daughter's going to trigger that. Maybe she's not suitable as a parent. So this comes up in lots of, of different ways throughout. But one thing I do want to touch on here, I'm not sure how eloquently I'm going to do this. I like how the trauma... Because if, if the overriding theme here is unconditional love and is that possible and um, by having the trauma, both in the case of the daughter and the case of the, the, the protagonist, it makes the conditions that much more intense, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's one thing, it's just, it's just this, this, this girl that we're going to adopt. It's another, 
well, yeah, but she's got this, 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 and this, and we're going to be, be waking up in the middle of the night with screaming, and it really, really puts this idea of unconditional to that much more of a test, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So, um, okay, I want to change gears here quickly, in, uh, and I'm just looking at the time here, and talk about, I just want to throw out some adoption, adoption facts. I mentioned a few at the very beginning, and then we're going to talk a little bit more about the system in particular. But I want to throw out some facts because uh, they're fascinating and, of course, super relevant to our conversation. So I mentioned in the intro to today's show just a couple. I'm going to reiterate a couple and then share a few more. These are from the adoptionnetwork.com. I hope that's a good site. To be honest, I was lazy. It was 2.30 last night, and that's just the one that came up with facts that looked good. So hopefully this is a, a reliable source. But according to adoptionnetwork.com, 428,000 children in fo- there are 428,000 children in foster care in the United States. 135,000 children are adopted every year in the United States. Males outnumber females. African American children are disproportionately represented. Over half are 6 years old or older. More than 60% of children in foster care spend 2 to 5 years there before being adopted. Uh, the average age for children waiting to be adopted is 8. Like the uh, protagonist in the story, or the the girl in the story who's seven goes uh, turns to eight, I think, during the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, many, of course, are never adopted. There are 1.5 million adopted children in the United States, and around seven million Americans are adopted. U.S. citizens completed almost 20,000 international adoptions in 2007, but that number declined to about 9,000 in 2011, just four years later, about in half, uh, when international adoptions became much more restrictive. Today, 60 to 70% of adoptions are open adoptions, which means there's a degree of openness and disclosure of information between adoptive and birth parents regarding the adopted child. Thanks for listening to part one of my interview with Rachel Howard, author of the new novel, The Risk of Us. Tune in next week for the second half of our talk when Rachel and I discuss the fears the adoptive couple has and the incredible challenges they face when interacting with the foster care and adoption systems. I asked Rachel about how she created and sustained the tension felt throughout most of the novel, issues the couple faces with a potential adoptive child, and how our pasts affect our abilities to give and receive unconditional love, and whether it's even possible. Thanks for listening. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review, and check back next week for part two of my interview with Rachel Howard, author of the new novel, The Risk of Us.